to Soundboard, the Steinway & Sons podcast on artistry and craftsmanship. I'm your producer and host, Ben Finan, editor-in-chief at Steinway & Sons and for the online music magazine, listenmusicculture.com. My guest today is Michael Gallant, a pianist who recently made his Steinway & Sons label debut with the release of Rock Rewind on a Steinway. Let's get after it. Michael, you have an album coming out on the Steinway and Sons label. It's called Rock Rewind, and it is all rock covers. Let's talk about what makes a good cover. So I guess what I want to know here, (laughs) what do you look for in a song where you think, oh, you know what? This would make a good solo piano cover. One of the things that I look for is first off a song just that I love, a song that turns me on, that makes me want to move, that uh, I I want to sing on endless loop uh, to myself, to my kids, uh, just a song that I love. And the other thing is, uh, you know, it's funny you said what makes a song that will be good in a solo piano context. I look for songs that one might think would be horrible in a solo piano context. I've been playing piano since I was five years old, and I was classically trained. Then I started studying jazz uh, as a teenager. But all through that, I was listening to rock. I came up listening to Pearl Jam, Stone Temple Pilots, Soundgarden, Aerosmith, Metallica, Government Mule, wide range of stuff. And the more I learned on the piano, the more I wanted to take the spirit and the power and the energy and the nuance of all of those songs and try to find a way to funnel it down into 88 keys. If you look at a band like Pearl Jam, for example, or, or Metallica, or pretty much any of the groups that I mentioned, you're talking electrified instruments, uh, heavy studio production, multiple layers and layers of sound and distortion, and those are things that are not that easy to squeeze out of a piano. And... I just found such joy and creativity in trying, in trying to make the piano rock as hard as the tracks I was hearing on the radio. And one of the things I discovered early on, and I think any piano player who tries to play rock you know, solo on a piano, is that if you just start banging out power chords, it's going to get very old very quickly. So you have to find, okay, since I can't match all of the overdrive of, say, this guitar part, what can I do on the piano that will still make the listener and make me as a player feel the same thing? So with nearly every track on this album, there were times when not, I wouldn't say consciously, but definitely subconsciously as I was playing, I was trying to channel the fury or or whatever it was that made the track so explosive for me into something that I could play with my 10 fingers on the piano. So you were looking for a challenge on one hand. You were saying, perhaps against intuition, what's something that's going to be difficult? And I'll just take a guess here. I imagine that that difficulty is actually helpful because it requires us to make decisions. It requires us as pianists to say, okay, I can't do all of this. So what's the essence here? What's the most important part? What's something I can draw out? What's a piece of counterpoint I can do? 
what's a chord substitution that might sound interesting and get me from B to C? That is completely true and uh, completely accurate. One of the things that really turns me on about the approach that I'm describing is that it pushes me into a very creative zone where I don't often find myself relying on muscle memory or my own musical cliches. I should say that every arrangement on this album, they're largely improvised. Uh, I sometimes came in with more of a roadmap and more of a structure for some songs than with others, but I find that when I'm creating the music that I'm happiest with, it's when I'm on the edge. It's when I'm really pushing myself, when I'm biting off more than I can chew in a sense. That's when the really interesting stuff comes out. So that requires, I would imagine, internalizing the song to such a degree that you can, let me say, I I would consider a lot of these arrangements fantasies, right? (laughs) None of these is karaokeable. And you're not so concerned with, oh, geez, I have two bars left in this guitar solo, right? You're taking a direction and you're heading off in that direction without perhaps knowing in advance where you're going to end up. Well, first off, I love that you describe them as fantasies. I'd never thought of that before, and that really that warms my heart. Then, and it's it's interesting. This, um, you know, Steinway and John Feidner, the uh, the producer, he deserves a lot of credit for this because I remember the first time I met him, we were at Steinway Hall in New York, and we were talking about working together on this sort of material. And I asked, when it comes to this sort of material, you could do flat out karaoke, or you could do flat out. Jackson Pollock version in music. And he more or less gave me free reign. The vibe that I walked away from with that conversation was, if it's good music, it's good music. And uh, I really I really appreciated that. So you went, I would say, closer to Pollock than karaoke. I think that if one sits down and does just a straight transcription, that's ultimately super boring. Because at best, it's going to make us want to just hear the original. And I think if you do that, then as an artistic venture, you're kind of failing. I would say, and what do I know? The goal has to be to bring out something surprising or illuminating and unexpected in this material so that we can look at it in a different way. And the songs that you've chosen are all, let's say, warhorses, or most of them, warhorses of the rock genre. And they achieve that status as war horses because there are so many ways in, right? There's a reason that we're still listening to Knocking on Heaven's Door or Creep or Mysterious Ways, right? These are in the Great American Rock Songbook at this point. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. Just to, to add one bit to that, you know, if you did do just a rough transcription, Knocking on Heaven's Door, for example, that has what, three chords in it? over and over, and the, the melody is, is highly repetitious. I mean, it's a wonderful song, but the repetitious chords and the repetitious melody, that for me just doesn't work on its own on the piano. That does not capture the spirit and the uplift and the hope of that song. There's so many other layers. So as the piano player, as the interpreter of these songs in this context, I had to search for other ways to draw in that meaning. When you sit down at the Steinway to tackle one of these pieces as a cover, what are the musical priorities in taking on something like that? A big part of it is losing myself in the music. 
it's not really about me as the player. It's not even necessarily about the piano or the circumstance or the weather outside or pretty much anything. It's just losing myself in the act of creating and trying to say something as raw and meaningful as I can. Also, to to get there, uh, one of the big priorities is trying to make the distance between you know, my gut, my heart, my brain, and my fingers as little as possible. So when I feel something, I'm hearing it played out of the piano at the same time. If that, I, I don't mean to be metaphysical. I really try to have it just be emotions pouring out. So let's move from the abstract to the concrete. I'd like to start with Mercedes-Benz which is a very simple, very minimal Janis Joplin classic. (laughs) I like what you do with this because it feels a little bit New Orleans and it feels a little bit contrapuntal. And it's a really exciting journey that we go on that you wouldn't expect from a song that, as we know it, seems so simplistic. Well, thank you for for that assessment, and I'm. Uh, uh, it's it's cool that you picked out the New Orleans influence. In high school, I actually played in a New Orleans trad jazz band, and we got to tour to New Orleans and play at Preservation Hall. That was uh, definitely a formative musical experience, and it pops out in cool and unexpected places every now and then, like with Janis Joplin. When you were working on that piece, what was it about the source material that drew you in? The first time I heard that song, I think I was in middle school or possibly high school, and there was some sort of talent show going on. And uh, there was a classmate of mine, a girl who I was friends with. I didn't know she sang. She walked out on stage with a guitar, turned the guitar over, started slapping the back of it in rhythm, and then screamed out that song, and it just it blew everybody away. She had a voice not quite like Janis Joplin, because nobody has a voice like Janis Joplin, but she was pretty close. It was amazing, and it just made such an impression on me that this a cappella song of kind of tongue-in-cheek longing could have such impact. And of course, I went and listened to the original recording many times from there, and I sing that song to myself all the time. I think what blew me away about it was that both in the way it's constructed, the way it's written, and also the way it's performed by Janis Joplin, it says so much with so little. That was an interesting challenge and also a blank slate when I sat down at the piano because I had pretty much free reign. I could create whatever chord structure I wanted around that melody. I experimented and I came up with something that felt good. But also when you have that much open space, it can also be terrifying. There's a lot of room to screw up and not do justice to the original intention and spirit of the song when you're uh, dealing with, uh, as I said, with so much open space. It succeeded really in pushing me into that edge space of uh, improvisation and creation that I'm often going for when I sit down to make these arrangements. woman behind the counter in a small town. 
This is a Pearl Jam classic. Pearl Jam being a member of the great grunge triumvirate. Pearl Jam, Nirvana, Soundgarden. I mean, Alice in Chains is kind of there as well as the big four. Eddie Vedder, first of all, (laughs) I hate to be morbid, but he's the remaining lead singer from one of these bands who did not die from suicide or drug overdose. That's so sad. (laughs) That's completely true, but I had never actually thought about it in those terms. Well, I hope he lives to be 120 and keeps on singing. I think he's unique among these front men because he always did have the long view. We remember when Pearl Jam were poised to take over the world and they retreated uh, in the face of Ticketmaster, perhaps realizing that they had become too big and they backed off and look at them now and look at Vetter now. Eddie himself has some amazing covers. I love his uh, cover with now the late Tom Petty of Waiting. He did an outstanding cover of the times they are a changing for a, a goofy political documentary with the also late Philip Seymour Hoffman called Last Party Over. Sometimes when we hear great artists doing covers that are frankly better than the material they write, it really pops. Now I'm spiraling and thinking of Jimi Hendrix's uh, cover of All Along the Watchtower or Like a Rolling Stone. Something about Guys who cover Dylan's songs better than Dylan. Maybe that's an episode on Down the Road. Eddie Vedder, the extant Eddie Vedder, has a great jazz singer quality, even though he's frontman of one of the great grunge bands. And all of his vocal lines already feel a little improvised. So add to that this very intimate song told almost in second person about a lady who recognizes an old flame decades later. She's stayed in her small town. He is not so much in this piece. Tell me what approach you took for this ballad. First off, Pearl Jam is my favorite band on earth. I, I agree with everything you said about uh, about Eddie Vedder, and uh, I, I just love them. And this song is, uh, you know, when you when you think about Pearl Jam doing, you know, some of their heavier songs like Go or Animal or Evolution or anything like that, uh, then shifting over to a song like this that is so nuanced and heartbreaking, uh, it, it's, really, it's really a gem. The song addresses themes of, of love and loss and aging, and as I mentioned, I'm, I'm a father, and, you know, having young children become uniquely aware of the passage of time and the impermanence of many things. 
And I think that there is a, a lot of trying to channel that in the playing of this piece. And it's interesting because, I mean, obviously all of this was recorded before the pandemic hit. So I can only imagine what some of these tracks would have sounded like if they were recorded right now, just given the entire zeitgeist of what's going on in the world. Let's move to Radiohead, Creep. Radiohead has, in the last decade, become go-to source tunes for a lot of bands, a lot of hip-hop guys, a lot of jazz guys. And you have picked Creep, which was their first big hit when they were still a rock band before they sort of went into Pink Floyd territory. (laughs) I like on Creep, you do a lot of work with overtones. You're really doing something interesting and a little bit modal. And I wonder if you could unpack what's happening on this cover. It's a great song. It talks about some very deep, real feelings of alienation and self-hatred and uh, feeling out of step with the world around you. And... Those are some really deep themes to explore. And I think that when I was coming up with this arrangement in the moment, it just needed some colors. It needed some dark colors and uh, overtones were a, a good way to get at that. Let's talk about Knocking on Heaven's Door, a Bob Dylan song, but you and I might know it equally for that Guns N' Roses cover. (laughs) Of course. Which was surprisingly good. You never know with Guns N' Roses, right? You, You write them off and then they just knock out a really good one. And I think such was the case for their cover. I don't know what your source was for this, whether it was Dylan or Axel or somebody else or or just 
the the bones of the piece itself. But what can you tell me about approaching knocking on heaven's door? I think my first exposure was definitely Guns N' Roses. Yeah, it's it's a pretty rock and cover. They they do a good job. I've of course heard the original um, countless times, and I've just heard it sung in a number of contexts, including interestingly uh, in worship contexts. It just struck me as again just as such a great song. We spoke earlier about some of the simplicity of the structure and the repetitiveness. I like things that can say a lot with minimal tools, with minimal fuel, I guess. It takes me back to my first um, my first jazz piano teacher. Her name was uh, Maria Rodriguez. She taught me in Washington, D.C. Her approach and her spirit is really in everything I play. She would sit down, we'd sometimes do two piano jams, and she would sit down, we'd be playing the blues, and I'd come up with whatever fancy thing I'd been practicing, and she'd play three notes. And there would be so much more meaning in what she played than in what I played. And not in a one-upmanship sort of way, but in a, I want to aspire to do that. I really am drawn to songs that don't throw the kitchen sink at you. They do what they do, they do it minimally, and they do it brilliantly. Let's end with Where Did You Sleep Last Night? On the SoundCloud link that I listen to these from, we have this as Nirvana slash Lead Belly slash traditional. For me, as a kid who grew up in East Tennessee, this was a, a Bill Monroe song. And it was one that exemplified the moniker of Monroe, which is that high, lonesome sound. And there was even some crooning in the middle. In the pond, in the pond, where the sun never shines, and shiver when the cold wind course i also remember the nirvana unplugged version which i think was deeply affecting and and awesome <laughs> in the pines in the pines where the sun don't ever shine i was shiver the whole night through
why don't you tell me a bit about how you dove into this song? I'll also add that, you know, when I think of some of these songs as fantasies, I think this is the exemplar of that bunch because of all the very many different stops it makes along the way over the course of its journey. It's really cool hearing this because you're you're coming up with like reactions and interpretations of the music that I'd never thought of, but that I completely agree with. It's really cool to hear this perspective. Thank you for that. I have to say, and actually I'm now thinking about it, I'm a little embarrassed that the only source material I used when I was you know, getting the song in my ears and in my head before recording it was the Nirvana unplugged version. And probably after hanging up with you right now, I'm going to go and pull up the Lead Belly version and five others just to, uh, just to hear what they're like. But that Nirvana track, that came at a very formative time in my life, and it, it stuck with me. And when I was coming up with the repertoire that I wanted to, uh, to work with for these recording sessions, I was like, oh man, I have to do that. It is so dark and dirty and even kind of sensuous. And not only are you, it doesn't feel like you're, you're looking into the past of Americana music. You're also really getting a, kind of a glimpse into what makes Kurt Cobain tick. He's so raw and just open on that track. It's it's really quite something. I loved the drone type aspect of it, the fact that they had kind of the cello going in the background and repetitive meditative rhythmic patterns on the guitar that they have going and, you know, is kind of dirty, low register, slurred lyrics throughout of it. And then at the end, when he jumps up the octave and screams it out and then has that break at the very end, right before the final phrase, that gives me chills every time I hear it. So when I sat down to, to do this, it was a, a similar challenge to some of the other tracks, like Knocking on Heaven's Door. It's like, okay, it's the same, the same harmonic progression, the same melody pretty much over and over with different you know, interesting dark lyrics what do I do with this? So definitely went into fantasy territory, as you so aptly call it, and dissonance, a lot of um, minor seconds, you know, doing kind of a push and pull between having things that felt very smooth and open and, you know, some, some major harmonies, and then suddenly just a stab of, of dissonance. That was one of the ways that I felt comfortable capturing some of the grit of the original. I should say that I did not know I was going to do that going in. This was one where I probably listened 50 times before going into the studio. And that was my preparation. I really wanted it to be kind of a blank slate to see what comes out when I sit down and I hold this song in my attention.
You've been listening to Soundboard, the Steinway and Sons podcast on artistry and craftsmanship. We heard clips from the Jimi Hendrix experience performing Like a Rolling Stone live at Monterey on Geffen, from Bill Monroe performing In the Pines on RCA country legends Bill Monroe on Yes, RCA, and Nirvana performing Where Did You Sleep Last Night on the album MTV Unplugged in New York on DGC Records. And we heard clips from Michael Gallant performing Mercedes-Benz, Elderly Woman Behind the Counter in a Small Town, Creep, Knockin' on Heaven's Door, and Where Did You Sleep Last Night? All from his Steinway & Sons label debut album, Rock Rewind on a Steinway. Available wherever you purchase or stream your music. Our intro music is Philip Glass's Mad Rush, performed on a Steinway Model M by me, Ben Finan, Editor-in-Chief at ListenMusicCulture.com. Question for the podcast? Message me on Facebook at Soundboard or hit me on the gram at Soundboard Podcast. Thank you for listening.